0: This morning you might um, have to bear with me a little bit because this is a a sermon I prepared for our evening congregation and in the context of that we were looking at um, uncomfortable questions and about how there's this worldview clash between what is in the world and society around us and and what is with us as as Christians who are seeking to live informed by by the scriptures. Um, And... And so, I mean, that, that's kind of the context. And I will kind of touch on it along the way, but um, I'm just, because I had this morning rolled out, this is just rolling out how it was written then. So hopefully you, you uh, can track along fine. I think you should be fine. Um, But in thinking about this difference between worldviews of of the society around us, as well as then in comparison to what we hold as Christians, I came across this line in a Tim Keller book. And it says that in our culture, the culture in which we live, divine judgment is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. And the reason then why it's so offensive is because of the different worldviews that are behind it. Like... Um, you know, when we worked through the Psalms, I, I know I, I've talked to you then about having a conversation with someone who was loving working through the Psalms, but was really struggling with the concept of, of the, the Psalms of, of vengeance um, and and way, the ways in which God is called to exercise His judgment, often in brutal ways um, when they've done wrong. And, and this person, reflecting on on that and on their internal difficulty, said but I suppose I've only ever lived in a safe and a comfortable cocoon. You know, maybe if I lived in a context where, where my life uh, or, and my very existence and that of my family and of the others who I love, where, where that was threatened every day, maybe in that context and with that kind of worldview, I'd understand those psalms of, of vengeance. Because our experience of the world shapes and informs then how we, how we understand it. And in a modern Western context like we live in, thoughts of God's judgment, they don't sit very comfortably with us. They don't sit comfortably with our worldview. What does sit comfortably with us is a God of love. Uh, One of the things that I will periodically do is stretch myself in, in my reading. So you know that that my main hobby, until I've discovered sports, is uh, my, my main hobby is, is reading. And so I, I'll read all the time, and I read you know, stuff that very much just aligns with what I already think. And so I deliberately stretch myself by reading things from Oprah's book club list. I, I gotta find something somewhere. And I read from Oprah's book club list because I know it's going to expose me to a different worldview to, to what I currently have. And it's going to expose me to a worldview that's maybe not universally, but, but it's kind of a generally held worldview of our society at the moment. And so I, I find myself reading uh, people like Cheryl Strade, uh, who then was played by Reese Witherspoon in her movie, or Elizabeth Gilbert of Eat, Pray, Love fame. Or, um, or Glennon Doyle, who you know, reconciled with her husband after discovering his infidelity, wrote a book about it, and then ended up leaving him for uh, a women's soccer player anyway. So, so we are talking about different worldviews here, aren't we? And so this is the, the stretch for me. And in each, each of these authors, at different points, they profess some kind of faith, but it's in a God of love. It's in a God of love who doesn't hold firm boundaries, but who instead lets them to live how they want to without imposing anything on them. And obviously there's an appeal there. I mean, divine favour, power, blessing on your life without any obligation to do anything back in return. Like, what's not to love about that? But you look at it more critically and you see that what they are actually doing is they are rejecting any authority outside of themselves. Or they're rejecting any authority that's higher than themselves. And in rejecting that outside higher authority, they're they're actually rejecting any accountability of their life to such authority. And so as a result, all they need to do is live true to themselves. And you've heard that. You know that that's a a worldview perspective. Just be true to you. Just do you. And to live true to themselves because after all, that's what a God of love would want. But if we carry that to its logical conclusion, what what if everyone lived like that? The world would degenerate into chaos. It's like in the book of Judges where we read this refrain that that, um, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when you read the book of Judges, that's not a good thing. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes results in things that are horrific. And to be fair, you know, people like the, these authors and such, you know, people who hold to this kind of view, they do understand that. And so that's why they, they do want justice and accountability in the world, but not on them. You know, they're free to do them, but others need to be held to a degree of justice and accountability, particularly those who disagree with them or criticize them or, or who have wronged them. And so the thought then of a God who judges anyone and everyone, to a different, higher, objective, unrealistic, unreasonable standard becomes offensive to them. So in our culture, divine judgment is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. But what about for us? Because we sit here as Christians and you know, for all that then we've maybe gone to church all of our lives as well, for all that we've been brought up in a Christian family, for all, for all of that, we still live and we have been shaped by the world around us that holds to this kind of a view. And it seeps into us. And we need to be honest about recognizing that. One of the things Paul addressed in, the letter, in his letters to the Corinthian church was that too much of Corinth had come into the church. And the same happens for us. We are naive to think that we are any different, that not too much of the world has come in to the church and to us today. The world and its ideas and its influences have seeped into us, shaping us into its image, often far more effectively than we're being shaped into the image of Christ. And so then we have a discomfort. You know, when we look at this quote, "It's not just our culture that has a discomfort with the judgment of God. We have a discomfort with this. With the idea of a God who judges. We want the love without judgment. Or actually, in fairness, we do want to judge in God because you know, there's those people like Hitler, as an obvious example, who, who we think should face the righteous judgment of God. And so then we're left with these kind of competing ideas within us. And we're not quite sure where we do or where we should kind of land and, and sit with them all. And so that's then why this becomes an uncomfortable question for us. And the question is, I should have maybe led with this because I've just left you assuming, is, is would a loving God judge? And it is an uncomfortable question for all the reasons that we've talked about already. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. Let me pause for a drink and we'll continue on. Our starting point for for considering this, and it's partly then why it becomes such a so unclear for us. Our starting point is to consider this that God is love. And that's a pretty unequivocal statement that describes the nature of God. It's not that God loves, it's not that God is loving, it's not that God does love love like things, it's that He is love. And so that's then where the problem seems to, seems to start for us. If God is love, how could he judge? And I suppose I could get more specific. If, if God is love, how could God command the effective genocide of pagan nations in the Old Testament? If God is love, how could God burn to the ground cities like Sodom and Gomorrah? And maybe ultimately, if God is love, how could he send people to hell? How could a so-called loving God do such things? How could a God of love judge and condemn people? And this is where the confusion and the difficulty lies. And so I want to come at our question from a number of different angles. And the first one is to challenge uh, the underpinning worldview that we have as we come to this question. Our worldview, on the whole... Is fundamentally that we should experience good in this life, and by extension, then into the world to come. It's why we wrestle with suffering and hardship, because we think, well, God is love, so how could he do this to me? In our health, wealth, and prosperity orientation that we have in this affluent Western world, we expect good things and we expect an easy life. And I'm saying this as a sweeping generalisation. I, I, I get that, but just roll with it. But that's not how Jesus sees the world. Where, where we seem to expect only good, and so hardship comes as a question, as a struggle for us, that's not how Jesus sees the world. In, in Luke 13, it says that there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans, who were killed and and suffered in, in this way, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or... Those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in, in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So the people came to Jesus and they had these, these situations going on and where, where they feel like it's unjust, it's wrong. It's wrong. And, and And as they express their frustration about the injustice of of the world uh, and implicitly of God, you know it, it happens when when good innocent people die for seemingly no reason, because Pilate murdered them because a tower fell on them. These were good people. How could God do this to them? But Jesus actually forces them to reassess their assumptions because he says it's not that innocent people died it's that Sinful people, everyone else, has managed to still graciously live. He turned their their worldview and ours on on its head. And, And Paul comes at the issue in the same way. In Ephesians 2, he says that like the rest of the world, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath or of his judgment. We work on the assumption that we deserve good things that we deserve love and grace from God. And so when judgment comes, when hardship comes, it comes as a shock and a surprise to us. It doesn't fit our worldview. But what Paul says here, echoing Jesus, is that what we deserve, what we deserve is actually the judgment of God. Which means that when we receive grace and mercy, that that's what should be shocking to us. That's what should surprise and unsettle us and our view of the world. Because the scriptures are very clear. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So so the, the question is, given the state of humanity, given ourselves, the question is, how could God not judge So let's consider this question in a more positive way, too. We might come to understand this necessity for God to judge. We might come to understand that, yep, we all deserve his judgment and so it's necessary that he do so. But the difficulty for us is still reconciling that with the fact of his love. And So to look at this question from a different angle is to say that it's because God is love that he needs to judge. Let's let's think this through. God is love. But that doesn't mean that he loves everything. God loves everyone, but not everything. And in fact, because God loves everyone, he can't love everything. Because not all things are good for the ones that he loves. So those are the things then that God hates. Things like murder. Abuse, deceit, theft, selfishness, pride, these things are not good. And they do harm in and to those that God loves. And so because he is love, and because he's motivated by love, he hates those things because they take away from the good that he desires. God judges because he loves. The alternative is that God would just let these things slide without judgment or response. But that's not love. It's indifference. That's disregard. It's not benign tolerance. It's, it's an active hatred, which, uh, you know, n- which I know is strong words, but, but if you think about it, if you have a friend who you see starts to hang around with people who are not good for them and leading them in a lifestyle and behaviours and choices that are taking them away from God, away from the person who, they, who you know them to be, you know, is undermining their, their character and all that kind of stuff. If you have a friend doing that, it's an act of love to call them on it. If you see someone who just lies all the time, and they are losing all their friendships because no one can trust them anymore, it's an act of love for you to hold them to account. If you know someone who is just full of just unwarranted arrogance, or if you have a sibling, you know, who's getting increasingly bitter about an ex-partner, or if you see someone who is in a married relationship and you are witnessing them flirting constantly with other people, it's an act of love to hold up the mirror to them and tell them and to their lives and to tell them that this is not good. It's an act of love to judge, if you like. But to just let them go and to let them just keep on making their, their own choices, that's that's not love. That's indifference. That's a disregard for their well being. And so God judges because he loves. Sin has separated us from the goodness that God intended for us. And so in Jesus, he came that we may then have life and have it to the full, that we might get back what what we've lost through sin. And so he calls us to live and act in a certain way because in love, he knows that it's good and best for us to do so. And when we act contrary to that, he judges because that is the appropriate and the loving response. And so in Hebrews, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline or of his judgment, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God disciplines us for our good. And it would be unloving of him to not. So taking these things together, we see that we deserve judgment because we are all sinners. And that judgment against sin is an expression of love. And I think, you know, we can, we can see the logic and the rationality of that. But I think then where, where it becomes confusing for us, where we experience the tension, is because most of the time we don't see or experience God's judgment. I mean, given what I've already said, I think we could understand it if You know, if someone were to sin and then God were to smite them. Like like that that would make sense to us. If there was this one-to-one correlation between our actions and then God's judgment. But that's not how it happens. And so this leads us to our third angle to consider of this question. So think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They are told that if they ate the fruit of a certain tree in, in the garden, that they would surely die. And one of the lies that the serpent says to them is that you you will not certainly die. And so then they ate the fruit. And what happened? Well, for one, they didn't die. Not straight away anyway. Genesis 5 tells us that altogether Adam lived a total of 930 years. And then he died. So while we're not told the specifics of of when the incident with the fruit happened in in Adam's life, what we can infer is that it took a a long time for him to then actually experience that judgment, to actually then die. And so it looked like for, I don't know, let's go round figures, let's go 900, let's go 800. For 800 years, it looked like the serpent was right. He did wrong. And he continued to live for hundreds of years more. But eventually the judgment of death caught up with him. And so why does it happen this way? Why are we objects of wrath, deserving of death, acting in ways that harm us and others, doing things that God hates, and yet we keep on living and we keep on flourishing? Well, it happens this way because God is love, and in his love, he delays his judgment. Remember earlier how I said we've come to almost expect goodness from God and not His judgment. There's a reason for that. Because in love, we're told He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He doesn't smite us straight away because that gives us no chance. It gives us no chance to turn from our ways and to turn to Him. Instead, God gives us time as He shows us His love and His goodness to prompt us towards Him. Paul challenges the Jews in Rome by saying, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience by not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God shows us love and grace not because we deserve it, but because by it he's wooing us to himself. The problem is that more often than not, it fools us into thinking that we just don't need God. And that we can do what we want without consequence. And so we become like Adam, living our extra 900, 800 years or so. And then, bam, the judgment finally comes. And at that point, it takes us by surprise, even though it never should have. We've got used to God's love forgetting his judgment. But his love doesn't cancel out his judgment. God delays judgment simply because he loves us and because he wants to give us a chance to come to him and to live in his ways. But ultimately then, that, that judgment does come. And in love, God judges us according to what we want. This is a fourth way of looking at this question of would loving God judge. In Romans 1, Paul talks about The wrath or the judgment of God that is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people. He argues that although they knew God, they neither glorified God, glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. And as a result, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that were made to look like a mortal human being. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator so these are actions that warrant God's judgment because, having been patient with them, they continue to persist in actions and choices that do harm to them and, and to others. And so with this build-up then, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, God gave them over to their desires. Because of this, God gave them over to their lusts. And just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, So God gave them over to a depraved mind. Paul is arguing that God judges us according to what we want. He says in chapter 2, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And so to those who by persistence in doing good, they seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and to follow evil... Well, the natural consequence of that is that there will be wrath and anger. What we see is that God doesn't force himself on us. If we want to live our lives without him, he'll let us. And he doesn't force himself on us. He doesn't make us live with him. Because to, to force himself in that way, that, that would be abuse, wouldn't it? Not, not love. And so in love, he honors our choice. And so his judgment becomes what we have already chosen. C.S. Lewis says it like this, that there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And they live submitted to him, trusting in him as Savior and Lord. And there are those to whom God says in the end, all right then, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And that's pretty confronting, isn't it? But, but think about it. If people live this life without having a bar of God, why would they want to spend eternity with him? And how would it be loving for God to make them do so? So his judgment becomes the natural outcome of the choices that we make throughout our lives. In love, God lets us make our choice. And his judgment is to let us live with it. A fifth angle then, as we consider would a loving God judge, is to recognize that at the end of the day, God will do what is right when he judges. We've been working off this verse that says that God is love. And while that's absolutely true, it's in the Bible as as definitive, God is love. What the scriptures actually the word that the scriptures actually use most often to describe God is the word holy. There are repeated refrains throughout the Bible that say God is holy, holy, holy. And the repetition is significant. It's not just that he's holy. He's not even holy, holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. This is bold, underlined, caps, circled, highlighted. In in contrast, God is never called love, love, love. And so for God to be this holy means that he will always, always act in holiness. So when it comes time to judge he will actually do what is right. To do otherwise would be to be not holy. And this was the great hope of Abraham when God came down to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah where his nephew lived. Abraham says to God, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, to treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so, at the end of the day, when God judges, he will judge rightly. No matter how we perceive or understand something, God will do what is right because he can do no other. His judgments, when they come, they will be righteous, which means that both his love and his holiness will be expressed in them. Which is what we see expressed ultimately in Jesus. When we consider the question about would a loving God judge, we can't help but come to him. Because in Jesus, we see the kindness and the severity. We see the love and the wrath of God meet. Listen to this from from 1 John 4. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, because we didn't, but that He loved us and He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is how God showed His love. That He sent His Son into the world. And this echoes what John wrote in his Gospel, that, that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Jesus is, God's expression, is the expression of God's love to us. And the way that he expresses that love is by being a sacrifice for our sin. In other words, Jesus is the expression of God's love by bearing the judgment and the punishment of our sin. And he does so in our place. In love, Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he becomes the object of God's wrath. And in then his death on the cross, he bears the full force and the full weight of God's judgment. And in doing so, he fully satisfies God's wrath as he dies for our sin. And the result of this then is that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so God will judge. Our sin and and his holiness demands it. But his love for us also means that he bears that judgment himself, freeing us from it if we trust in Jesus. Without Jesus, God loves us. But we necessarily remain under his judgment. But in Jesus, through faith in him, God loves us and he makes atonement for us. He satisfies his judgment in himself and then he gives us his life so that we can live with him eternally. In Jesus, God's love and his judgment meet. And it's why then he's the hope of the world. It's why then he's the one that we've gathered in his name to sing, in God we trust. And I will rise as Christ was raised to life. It's why we sing, be thou my vision. It's why we sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because it's in Jesus and only in Him that we have our hope. It's in Christ and in Him alone that we can stand before our God. So this is not the message that was planned for this morning. That one probably would have been a bit more cheery, perhaps. But we have to trust that in God's sovereignty is the message that He had for us for today. And so may God have spoken to you through it. Let's pray together, church. God, this is, this is not something that we really particularly want to think about. Judgment and wrath. And yet, it's what we see in the scriptures and for all the discomfort that it causes us, it actually just points us all the more to you. Because when we look at it, we see that we deserve your judgment and wrath. We see that for all that we've become complacent and live as if this world is already heaven on earth, that yet uh, we are sinners by nature so far from you and condemned rightly so by you and then we open your scriptures and we see Jesus and in Jesus we see the judgment of our sin we see the the cost of it but we also see your great abounding steadfast love for us that in patience continues to show us kindness and forbearance, that we might turn to you and come to know you as our Savior and be saved from, our, from the judgment of our sin. In Jesus, we see the love that, that didn't inflict the punishment upon us, but that, God, where you bore it upon yourself so that we didn't have to. In Jesus, we see your great grace, love, and mercy that then gives us life and life forever with you. And it all comes to us in Jesus. And so God, I pray for us this morning that our hope might be in Him. And maybe you're here this morning and and you're someone who who hasn't put your faith and your trust in in Jesus. And you've heard the message this morning and man, it's uncomfortable, uncomfortable, you disagree with it and everything within you just wants to rebel against it and yet the truth of it just has sunk in deep and hard. And so the invitation to you from God today is receive my forgiveness. Place your trust in my means of salvation. And so if that's you today and you want to put your faith in Jesus as Saviour, then you just pray to God, just quietly in your heart to say, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner far from you and I deserve all the judgment that is coming to me. But I thank you that in Jesus, you've made a way through so that I don't have to experience that and instead receive the gift of your great love and of life in you. I want to put my faith in Jesus then this morning as my saviour. And I want to live following him as my Lord, knowing that to do so is to walk in your love. And I just thank you for what you've done for me through him. And if you've prayed that today, then you can have an assurance that you... loved by God and if you've prayed that today come tell me or the person sitting next to you or someone who you've come with or whatever, that would be awesome and for the rest of us may today be a reminder to us God I pray not to take for granted the goodness that you bring into our lives but to always look to you, to always look to Jesus as our only hope as our only confidence and to then worship him in how we live our lives and in our prayers and in our praise as we gather as your people. It's in Christ alone that we can stand, and it's to him that we give our lives and our worship now. Amen. Just let's stand and let's sing and make this effort.